Good morning, church family. Hope you all had a wonderful week. Hope you're doing well, feeling well. Uh, Hope you are encouraged. Hope you are reminded that you are not alone. There's a church here that still loves you and longs for us to be together, and I hope you experience and know that. I also hope you have your Bibles open with you. As, uh, hopefully, if you've been able to go uh, on our website and look at This Week at Greg Abel's, you've sung God's Word, you've read God's Word already, and now you are prepared to dive into God's Word together as we look at verse uh, 13 this morning in a sermon entitled Blameless in Holiness. We're actually going to read in our scripture reading verses 11 through 13, uh, but before we do that, before we pray and before we read, Uh, I just want you to know in this this text this morning, there is an amazing hope found in these words. I want you to read that with a hopeful heart, a hope that really has afflicted and and comforted me throughout this week. Uh, It's a glorious promise that we get to look at this morning. That promise is that Christ will present us to God blameless in holiness on the day of his coming. That is the promise. Just think about that. Think about that and let that set in as we read. As a believer, you will be saved from your sins and you will be presented blameless in holiness on the day of the Lord Jesus' coming. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's go ahead with that in mind and read these verses from verses 11 through 13. Then we'll pray and dive into God's word uh, together. Paul writes to this church in Thessalonica. He says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love uh, to one another and to all just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. First Baptist Church of Gray Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you, Lord willing, having hopefully already sung to you praise, um, Praises that are true about you, Lord, that's a gift. We acknowledge, before we come to your word, we acknowledge and sing about your sovereignty, your majesty, your willingness to work. And we pray now to give us that same confidence, the same confidence with which we sing to you, to to ask you to help us and hear your word, that we would hear it well, that we would hear with the same expectation that you will change our hearts, our bodies, and make us more into the image of Christ. It's, Christ. it's by Christ's blood that we ask these things, and in his name we ask these things. Amen and amen. <clears throat> I think it's necessary before we really unpack our text and understand all that it is that God would have us to hear this morning, uh, that we would look at and examine the timeline of our salvation, where we are now, on the timeline, examine the timeline in general. We really look at salvation in three phases as it's worked and fleshed out uh, on human beings. Really, it's the only way or the easiest way our salvation can be understood. So I'm going to run through these phases or this timeline quickly, and so try and follow along. We're going to look at the cause, the means, and the end of our salvation. Uh, You may have heard this before, but uh, just divulge with me into the text. 
the cause is justification. The cause of our salvation is justification. Uh, and so what does that word mean? What is justification? Well, John Calvin had this to say. He said, justification is the acceptance with which God receives us into his favor as righteous men. And we say that it consists in the remission of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And so justification, it's the acceptance with which God receives us into his favor as righteous men. Remember, we, we are not righteous, but because of the work of Christ and salvation, he receives us as righteous. We know that justification only happens, it's only accomplished uh, by Christ for those chosen by God, and it's brought about by the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers through repentance and faith. It is the already of our salvation, okay? Uh, justification is decisive for eternity. So powerful is this declaration of righteousness and the atonement of sin that there is zero chance that we will not be sanctified and glorified. If you've been justified, if the Lord has declared you as righteous and received you in favor based on the finished work of Christ, then the, the rest of the timeline of salvation will happen. For the believer, it's a rock-solid foundation. Uh, this blood of Christ and the death of Christ that uh, atones for our sins and secures what is not yet to come in our salvation as if it's already been brought about. That's what justification is. It's the declaration of righteousness that we have been received uh, by God in his favor as righteous men even though we aren't because of the work of Christ. So what's accomplished by justification? What is accomplished by that? Well, the first is sanctification. We can refuse, uh, refer to this as the means of our salvation. The means of our salvation is sanctification. It's the working out of that salvation. It's the place we're all at today. We are all being made more into Christ's image and growing in holiness. John Frame says this. He says, we can think of sanctification as the outworking of new life given at regeneration or repenting and being renewed. We can think of sanctification as the outworking of that new life. If we rightly understand justification as the accomplishment of our salvation, then sanctification is the running of the race and the receiving of the prize. It's how the saints prove themselves to be in Christ by putting off sin, putting off the flesh, and putting on righteousness or the likeness of Jesus. And listen, sanctification, you can see it's no small potatoes doctrine, right? It, it's not a work of man any more than justification is. In fact, the, the righteousness by which we strive toward, the, the, the idea of being made more like Christ and striving towards that, it's, it's foreign to us. The, the strength in which we pursue Jesus and run after Jesus and grow in Jesus is not our own strength, but it belongs to the person and work of Christ. And it's distributed to us, given to us by his Holy Spirit. Uh, sanctification also serves as the comfort or assurance of salvation to the believer in this life. 
It's how we know we belong to Jesus. It's the fruit on our branches. That's how we know we are in Christ. So sanctification is the proof of what's been accomplished or purchased in salvation Salvation and the natural outworking of the new life in Christ in regeneration. So sanctification, however, is not the end. So we have been declared righteous, we've been saved, justification, we are being made more like Jesus, we're being saved, sanctification, but it's not the end. The ultimate end of God's plan for his people is seen in glorification. The end of our salvation is glorification. This is the end or the purpose of salvation. It's the blessing that comforts all believers as they await their coming Savior. This is, the, this is the not yet of our salvation. This is justification has been saved. Sanctification is we're being saved. Glorification is we are going to be saved. It's the not yet, the glorious hope that all will be made right in this world forever and that we will dwell in the presence of God, his angels, and all of his people. This glorification also bears with it the removal of the curse in our bodies. We will no longer struggle against the flesh, but we will all be able to glorify God fully with our actions. So justification, the atonement for the penalty of our sin, which we receive a new nature. Sanctification, the outworking of that new nature and a struggle against the flesh. In glorification, we receive our new resurrected bodies no longer tainted by sin. In other words, in glorification, the curse is utterly removed from our spirit and our bodies. Both spirit and body will be made into a state of sinless perfection. We will have that which has never been seen before in men. And all of this is because of Jesus. I mean, that's amazing. However, sometimes when we talk about these three things, we want to separate them. They, they all go together it's one salvation. It's not just to be seen only in parts. In fact, you cannot have one without the other. There's no one who has been justified by God who has not also been sanctified by God and glorified by God. And so it goes the same way. There's no one who's been glorified by God who has not been justification and sanctif sanctified by God. It just doesn't happen that way. It's helpful to understand this in phases and parts, but they should not and cannot be completely separated because they are all one work in the will of God for the believer. However, saying that today, our, our focus is going to be towards glorification because that's what the text focuses on. It's, it's the aspect that Paul desires to encourage these young believers uh, with in this letter. We actually see all three parts of our salvation here as they ought to be. We see the cause, the work of God the Father and God the Son. It, it says in verse 11 of our text, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you and may the Lord make you. This is centered in on the will of God and the work of Christ. And then we see hints of the means of our salvation, sanctification, and the rest of verse 12 may make you increase and abound, grow in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. If you remember from last week, to truly abound in love is to keep the whole law. That is our sanctification. And finally, we arrive at the result or the end of this, which we'll examine in verse 
13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. See, the grammar here suggests that the cause and the means bring about the end, the purpose or the end of salvation. Remember, that's glorification, where Christ and the Father will be viewed rightly by us for all eternity. So let's try and now move to understand the text. Now that we've seen kind of the order of salvation and have seen, seen the order of salvation even uh, in the text, let's examine the text for what it is. And so the question that is, is begged of this text is how? How do we arrive blameless in holiness on that day? Because it feels like I'm so far away from that. How does that work? Well, the answer is here. In fact, if you look at the first two words of our verse in verse 13, you see the words, so that. Uh, it refers back to the abounding love previously pictured. And, and really, remember, it, it's not inappropriate to think of that abounding in love as sanctification because love it, love's truest picture it love is the truest picture of sanctification love uh, has to be sanctification right if one was to perfectly abound in love then one would be perfectly sanctified so the command is rightly viewed as impossible for imperfect beings such as ourselves and maybe you felt that way last week hearing the call to love and and, and to abound in love it seems impossible it, it seems impossible because we're imperfect we are those who are lacking in our faith and lack love in our being and yet it is rooted and commanded at the very work of God uh, for our lives. And so, yes, it is impossible to bring about, but not for God to will and work in us. Remember, this love is, in a way, it's, it's how we know we belong to God. But this text specifically, the impossible task, the possible law-keeping task is the way that we will know that we stand before God, blameless in holiness, when Christ returns. See, see my, my point here in telling you this, brothers and sisters, is that this is one of the most difficult things to come to terms with in all of the Bible. This is what, this is what we need to come to terms with. It, it's really simple. You need to trust Christ for your salvation and for this work to take place. You have to trust Christ for this. You understand that, that God has, has promised it. If, if you understand that what love is and, and you understand how impossible it is for us and yet you understand that God has promised this, then what do you need to do? You have to trust to, in Christ for this to come about. We're going to see soon as, as we continue to go through this text that Christ is the one who does this. Christ is the one who works this in us to present us to, God, to our God and Father. So, so great is the standard set before us, but it's not greater than Christ and his relentless desire to purify his bride. And so, listen, these young believers and, and, and those who are listening to this, who may be even struggling with this idea of your Christian growth, don't be discouraged. We will soon see the work of Christ in you if you are truly his. He will begin this process of purifying you and bringing you to the so that of what abounding in love actually is. And so the second thing we see in our text, the next phrase there is that 
so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. See, this work is accomplished by the Lord Jesus on our behalf in order to present us pure to God. This work of establishing, it's done in our hearts. Here, used to refer to uh, the innermost parts of us. Our heart meaning our emotions, our motives, our thoughts. All of it will be made blameless in holiness. I mean, that's, that's something, isn't it? I mean, we like to think of our salvation as being this, this far-off paradise where we'll receive pleasures and, and we'll be blessed for all eternity. And that, that is true. But there's also, friends, there's a, there's a real change in us that happens when we're glorified. I mean, we will be sinless. Our struggles, our thoughts will be blameless in holiness. That's glorious, <laughs> It's the exact antithesis to our previous state before Christ, and it's what's not yet fully realized in our current state. Uh, this work is established by our abounding in love. So it may be said, if we abound in love, we will be established wholly on that day. Or God currently is establishing our hearts blameless in holiness by our sanctification, which is our growth in love. See, if God is the one making us to abound, and if he's the one establishing us, then this can all be viewed within one purpose, being presented wholly before God. His goal, God's goal for us, is that we'll be presented wholly on that day. Which then brings us to the last part of our verse, before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. See, the picture here is of the, the final day. It's the coming judgment, the moment when God had his final victory over all his enemies, where his kingdom is ushered in, the bride of Christ is presented before God uh, and to Christ. What else is there, saints? Just, if you think about the majesty of that moment, this glorification we receive is better than anything. If you haven't heard it, Yet in the sermon, hear it now. We won't be able to sin again. We will not be able to do anything other than love, glorify, and serve our God. There will never, ever again be another fall of man, and Satan can never tempt us away. And listen, it's not just that we won't be able to sin anymore, but we won't want to sin anymore. Uh, can you imagine uh, the struggles daily which we confess to one another here? Can you imagine never even thinking of that again, but only thinking about that which glorifies Christ? To have a small part of the mind of Christ as he walked through his life here on earth? Friends, I want you to understand there's nothing better in all of creation than this glorification. Uh, how else can we be motivated to live holy lives? What else do we need? Listen, I, I'm belaboring this point because it's central to our Christian growth, our sanctification. This understanding and abounding in love is the very purpose for Paul writing this down, is that they would live holy lives in light of the return of Christ. The return of Christ spells with it everything we can ever hope for or ever need. In fact, it cannot be compared. And so then there are really two options for man seen here in the last day. There are only two options. <clears throat> you can be presented to be blameless in holiness according to the work of Christ. 
or you can be judged in sin and condemned. Those are the only options for human beings in this world. The picture here of us being presented holy and blameless is beautifully represented in the idea of Christ and his bride. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 concerning the temptation of the Corinthian church, we read this last week, he says, oh, that you would bear with me in a a little folly, a little foolishness, and and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I might present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Didn't we see that here in 1 Thessalonians where where Paul was so concerned for the believers here in Thessalonica that he prayed for them every day, night and day most exceedingly. He earnestly tried to come to them, but the devil prevented him from coming. His fear that the devil had tempted them in vain. That's the same divine jealousy with which Paul addresses the the church in 2 Corinthians. It's the fear of Paul. It's the concern when we are addressing the bride. The problem is... Well, what if, what if we're not pure and holy on that day? What if we're not pure and holy on that day? Will, will Christ present a harlot on the day of the Lord? Is that even possible? Right? He says in Ephesians chapter 5, concerning marriage, in the context of marriage, he says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and with, without blemish. See, church family, the biggest dilemma in all of Scripture, remember, is this. How can sinful man be in relation with a holy God? Can Christ present a harlot to his father on the day of his coming? No. Uh, There's no way. See, our, our salvation has to include growing in holiness, what we would call progressive sanctification, progressive holiness, not only by the decree of God, but because of God's nature. Here again, the lies the main point of our message. Christ will present us to God blameless in holiness on the day of his coming. In fact, because of God's holiness, we can do nothing but be made pure on that day. Anything less than that perfect purity will result in condemnation. And and so we see here then this verse. This verse is either an encouragement or a warning. In fact, I think it serves as both depending upon who you are in the audience. This verse is an encouragement or a warning. Now, if if you read it, Paul is writing to believers. So if you're a believer... This is first and foremost an encouragement. Why? How is this encouraging? Well, because friends, it's sure to happen. It's going to happen. For those who abound in love, for those who have been changed by God's grace according to the work of Jesus, it's an encouragement. But for those who are not abounding in love, who are not showing signs of growth, who are not showing fruit or evidence that they've been justified by God, there is fear on that day. 
Again, let me assure you that the intention of this verse was to encourage a young, growing body to continue in their growth. But just imagine the response of one hearing this who knows within himself that there is not even a small amount of godly love in them. Just put yourself there in the congregation in Thessalonica. You had an apostle write you a letter. Your elders before the church, they read this letter. You heard this. Everyone's clapping. They're celebrating. And you sit there in trepidation because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit that there is not an ounce of love inside of you. If this is not true of you, if you do not show evidence that you are growing and abounding in love or growing and abounding towards Christ, then there's fear. And fear in that moment is absolutely appropriate. Because if you are truly afraid and truly believe, then you will beg and ask God to change your heart in this way. If we see that the grammar here picture proves the necessity of the abounding love established on that day then the necessary inference is that there is no love in us. If there's not an ounce of love in us, then there is no holiness, and therefore there will be no forgiveness on that day. See, see we understand in part what's meant in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, when it says, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So the, the proper response for those who who know no godly love in them should be fear. Again, leading to repentance, please. If you hear now and the Holy Spirit convicts you that this is not true of yourself, that you've never been grown towards Christ in any way, begin to work that out and beg for him to save you. Please repent of your sins. Because there are only two options on that day. You will be made blameless in holiness or you will be condemned and judged. If we believe what God's word says, then we should examine our hearts by his word and either rejoice and, and, or repent according to it. You might begin to say, well, listen, Pastor Cody, this, this sounds a whole lot like works-based salvation. And, and last time I checked, salvation's by faith alone. But church family, I'm, I'm not talking about how we are saved here. I'm talking about how we know we are saved. It's a world of difference in knowing how we are saved, or, or seeing how, talking about how we are saved and how we know we are saved. How can we look and see the work of Christ that is done in our life? See, here's, here's my problem. I, I, I'm afraid that us in the modern church, particularly in the Western church, we are perfectly okay with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And, and amen, that's true. We should be okay with that. But, but then the problem is we immediately write off what's said in Ephesians 2, 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do we have room in our theology for this, brothers and sisters? God's word is clear. We are not saved by works. Amen and hallelujah. But, but we're not saved if we aren't changed. <laughs> In fact, we are created and saved for good works. We see this all over Scripture. 
In John 15, a branch without fruit is separated and burned. Those who walk according to the flesh will die, but those who walk according to the Spirit will live, according to Paul in Romans 8. Walking according to the Spirit manifests the good fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. 2 Peter 1, we can make our calling and election sure by examining if the godly traits listed in that passage are ours. My point is, is, is this, according to the text, if we have love, then we can be sure. If we have godly love or abounding in godly love, we can be sure we'll be raised on that day blameless in holiness. In fact, nearly all the passages that are given to us on the assurance of our faith have us examine ourselves in light of this growing to be more like Jesus. What we would call progressive sanctification. Any salvation without fruit is no salvation at all. Uh, the idea that you can be saved and just do whatever you want for the rest of your life means that you have no assurance and likely you have no salvation. Uh, please don't take the doctrine of justification by faith alone and turn it into a cheap grace. As Martin Luther says, we are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that stays alone. It's a faith that God has willed. It begins in justification where we're declared righteous and we're regenerated. And for the rest of your life, it sends you on a walk towards growing in the likeness of Christ. And it will end when you die and you are glorified in the return of Christ. But this leads us to another question, right? I, I'm trying to get ahead of your questions here. If always, if you have more questions, you can text me or call me. We love talking about scriptures here at First Baptist Church of Great Gables. Uh, because this leads me to a next question as I was thinking about this. Okay, how then do we know how much love is enough love? Uh, how do we know when we're loving enough or when we show enough signs of godly love? Well, here's... Here's what I think, church. We can take comfort in knowing that what was lacking in the believers in Thessalon Thessalonica was not the element of love, but the maturity of love. I'm going to say that again. We can take comfort in knowing that what was lacking in these believers that Paul's writing to was not the element of love, but the maturity of love. See, listen to me. They were not devoid of love. But, but I believe the Thessalonian believers would agree that they too fell short. They too wondered, I'm not loving enough. And so uh, Paul does not look here and say, listen, if you are not the most mature loving believer in the entire world, then you are condemned. He's saying, listen, do you have the love that evidences your faith? Then you can know for sure. See, see, Paul wants to establish what is lacking in them here. And it's clear that love is lacking from them. That's the point. They're not void of it. They simply have not yet been perfected yet. What was lacking was not the seed of the plant, but the growth that God would give over time. They can rejoice. We can rejoice in this because God would surely give them more since this is his will for them. Church family, get excited here. How gracious of God to give us a promise such as this. If we can really bank and count on his grace to perfect what is lacking for us, then it means we can have the smallest mustard seed, little tiniest bit of love that reflects God's character in our life, and we've got it. He will persevere us to the end. 
If you have even but a little of fruit on your branch, then you may rejoice because God will prune you that you may bear more and more fruit. See, see the end goal of all this, the consummation of this is not that you're the biggest fruit-bearing plant, but, but simply that you're part of the vine. Therein lies again the comfort of this passage. Christ is the one who will present us blameless in holiness on the day of his coming. This prayer is rooted in the will and work of God. It assures us and it assured them that God will continue to provide this holiness and love that they need. And here's the most encouraging part to me in all this passage, friends, is that Paul's prayer was answered. And I almost missed this. I probably should have mentioned this verse last week, but, but I'm glad I didn't because I almost missed this and then came across it last week in my study for this text. Paul's prayer was answered. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. It's the second letter. After he writes this first letter, this is what Paul says. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. Yes, praise God. He wrote it. He commanded it. He prayed it. And by the grace of God, it was true of them the very next letter he wrote. Wow. God did it for his people in Thessalonica. They will be raised blameless in holiness. And, and it was answered and it will be answered the same for us who are in Christ. I want you to understand this. I want you to apply this and be encouraged. If, if you think that you don't have enough love to meet some quota, then you've missed the point altogether. The quota is the glory of Christ and his work for his people. So if you're, you're hearing this and you feel weak in this way, you feel weak in your Christian growth, be encouraged. It is not you who will accomplish this. Yes, you must strive. In fact, we're going to get to that next week. You must strive. It's the way God does it in us. We, with our new natures, begin to work it out. Paul puts his confidence, though, in the working of the Trinity on, behalf, uh, on our behalf for God's glory. So let's simply apply this. If, if we just look at the context of this whole letter, we could easily say that one of the main messages of 1 Thessalonians is to live a holy life in light of the return of Christ. That's, that's one of the, the main messages. Why is that? Because hear me, church family, the return of Jesus Christ is our greatest hope. Christ's return is our greatest hope. The transforming power in this passage comes from the rejoicing of understanding that. And, and my one prayer in preparing this is that you will understand and hope in the return of Christ. If you take nothing else today, take away the fact that our salvation is brought about by God and finished on the day of his coming. So the solution to every trial and every tribulation we currently face is for Jesus to return. And I, I love that I've been hearing this language recently. In the light of every event and every trial, we say, come Lord Jesus. We sing, come Lord Jesus. And we sing with full hearts because I believe that we're beginning to realize in the midst of this terrible time we're going through that the return of the Christ is our greatest hope. So we need to live in light of that truth. That's the application. Hope in the return of Christ 
and live in light. And if we understand and hope in the truth, this truth, then so much of what we're lacking in our faith would disappear. If we truly expected the Lord to, to walk through these doors at any moment, then how could we go on sinning? Imagine if he called ahead, and I know this isn't right. I'm not saying he's going to do this. We, we know where we stand on this. But just imagine if he called ahead and said, hey, I'm on my way to Gray Gables. And here we are in just debauchery. I mean, we are just sinning up a storm. If he called ahead, we would immediately stop, straighten up, wipe the place down, and sit in our pews waiting for the Lord to come. Why? Because he's coming, and we know he is, and we don't want to be sinning when our glorious Lord appears. So if we understand that Christ is coming soon, then don't sin. I know it seems impossible. That's because it is. But again, church, the goal here is not sinless perfection on this side, but that it will be true of us on the side of Christ's return. Church, Christ will present us blameless in holiness on the day of his coming if we are in him. We can rest and rejoice in that. But most importantly, let's live in light of that glorious hope and truth. Let's live as if that is actually the case. That's the message of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his help in applying this. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you, God. We are so grateful for you and the word that you have encouraged us with, that you have not left the details of eternity to be known only by you, but you have given them to us to rejoice in, Father. Thank you for that. Father, I pray for the words that come from your word, Father, that you would bear them up into the hearts of the people who I love here at First Baptist Church, Gray Gables. Father, the Holy Spirit would use your word to work out your purpose for us, Father. That I might be able to rejoice and abound in love and they might as well. Father, would you encourage them and would, for those who have no love, who see no love, would you cause repentance, that you would not cause them to be hardened in their hearts, that you would, by your gospel grace, change them, that they may be made new by the regeneration, the washing of your word, Father, that you would honor yourself by your word, Lord, to work mightily among your people here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we come to the time of invitation, church, and really it's quite simple. For those of us who are in Christ, boy, we rest and rejoice in this promise. We, we, we first, we rest and rejoice in this promise, and so rejoice alongside your brothers and sisters. Just send somebody a message this week to say, did you know what Christ promised to do for me because I know I'm in him? And, and then the charge really is to live in light of that. You know in your heart of hearts how how sometimes we struggle with that, whether it's the anxieties of the day or fear or panic of the truth of Christ. No, we live in light of the fact that Christ will present us blameless in holiness. May that cause rest and may that cause work in us to strive towards this. But for those of you here who, who may be like that example, that congregate member in Thessalonica who are hearing this word proclaimed and know that you don't have a sliver of evidence of godly love or godly change in your life whatsoever, 
that you've been telling people you've been justified, you've been declared righteous, but you've got no evidence to know that you are actually growing in holiness in any way, shape, or form. You know who you are. I I believe that the Spirit is convicting you if if, if that's you. Believe in the power of the Word of God. If, If that's you, my prayer is that the Spirit would convict you and that you would have a healthy godly fear to to the point where it would cause you to reach out and and declare Christ as king and give your life over to him if you recognize that you don't have an ounce of godly love friends then I'm praying the spirit would cause this conviction and repentance in your heart and if that's you just do us a favor please reach out to us let us know how we can pray for you let us know how we can minister to you so that you can have this wonderful, wonderful promise. That's our prayer. We love you, church family. Um, We long to be able to see you soon. We're praying for things to go back to the way they were. We're praying even better that we would be changed and made more like Jesus than the way we were. So Lord, uh, we're praying the Lord would help us and God bless you. um, And we'll hope to see you soon. Have a wonderful day.